Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. We were still way apart on the high-low until the jury sent a note out asking that they send back to the jury my damage chart. Right. As, soon as, <laughs> as, as, as soon as that happened, then the mediator said, you know, we'll take you two to 14. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, the, I'm your host, Steve Lowry, and with me as always is Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. How are you? I'm glad we can hear you because uh, just a moment before we started, we could see your lips moving, but couldn't hear what you were saying. I am cursed. I'm like the black widow of microphones. I don't even know how you're going to be, how long you're going to be able to hear me, but yeah. um, I've gone through, for our listeners, I've gone through one brand new microphone that I somehow managed to break. And so then Taras, our producer, led, lent me one of his, and it seems like I'm in the middle of breaking that one too. So fingers crossed. Hopefully, yeah, we'll, we'll keep it going. We'll keep it going. And, uh, and yesterday, I should, should, not yesterday, but uh, or in our last uh, podcast, uh, right in the middle of the podcast, uh, we lost, uh, lost electricity. <laughs> and uh, and Taras, uh, like the uh, just uh, never-say-die soldier that he is, uh, instead of giving up, he walked out and I think was standing either in his yard or in the middle of the field, make sure he could still get a all the recordings. So that was a great job, Dress. Had to had to record the rest of the episode on his uh, through like an app on his cell phone and stand outside in his yard. <laughs> that's uh, sacrifice. That's dedication. That's exactly I, I'll right. I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> well, and, and you've guaranteed me, Teres, right? You called the power company, made sure there's going to be no problems with power, that's, and they're going to. That's right. I called. I called the governor. You know, the mayor, <laughs> nice. everybody. Nice. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, today's episode, uh, I am, uh, I mean, we're excited. We, we always are excited to talk to our guests. Uh, but Yvonne, our guest today, I have to say, I think he's had maybe the best three weeks last month of, you know, most lawyers you hear of. Uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, came off of a $151 million verdict against Ford Motor Company. Uh, and then uh, went to New Orleans uh, to uh, receive an award uh, from the Southern Trial Lawyers as the War Horse Award winner, uh, which means basically that you've had a, a long career of just great success of trial after trial. And so we are just uh, very pleased to have on Greg Allen from Beasley Allen, Crow, Methvin, Portis, and Miles. Greg, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, appreciate you inviting me on. Well, and Greg, what I should say is one thing I learned about you recently, uh, that we share a uh, very uh, underutilized and underappreciated talent of being able to ride a unicycle. <laughs> it's rare to run into somebody that's as crazy as I am, but uh, it's, it's funny. <laughs> I know. Uh, but, no, and, and you're a juggler, too. That's, that's, that's right. That's no, right. I, can't, I, can't, I can't do that. <laughs> Well, and, and I, I did hear a comedian just recently say that he thinks that all jugglers were just kids who had nobody to th play catch with, so they just learned how to play catch with themselves. <laughs> yeah, well, my cousin and I learned to ride a unicycle when we were about 12 years old. We grew up south of Atlanta, and we told everybody that we didn't have enough money to buy two wheels, so we had <laughs> That's right. one. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. That's true. Right. It was true. <laughs> yeah, you basically uh, took one bicycle and shared it between the two of you with one wheel. <laughs> That's 
that's about right. Uh, luckily, neither one of us wound up in the hospital, so we're we're very fortunate. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I understand, Greg, that uh, that you uh, pull out the unicycle and and still try to ride it every year on your birthday. Is that right? That's exactly right. My, it just so happens the uh, my cousin that learned to ride when I did is one year to the day younger than me. So our challenge each year is to uh, on our birthdays to ride it and you have to send proof uh, to the other uh, <laughs> right. and, and so far no one has died so we're, we're good <laughs> yeah, yeah that's great that's great i like that although that that comment about juggling is really throwing me for a loop steve because i learned how to juggle from a book that somebody in my family bought me to teach yourself how to juggle and so, right. and now i'm suddenly realizing that was definitely a message to me that they did not want to play catch with me <laughs> right i needed to start playing alone. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I remember right around the same age as uh, what Greg was talking about when I was 12. I mean, you know, I just thought juggling was the coolest thing. I thought riding unicycles and doing anything, you know, weird like that was the coolest thing. So I just decided to teach myself and, uh, and, and uh, have had fun with it. Should we, well, should we cons- go ahead, Greg. I, I know we're off on a tangent, but anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, instead of juggling, I, I learned to do magic and uh, do a little card magic. And, uh, right. and just yesterday, my, my daughter-in-law said that her son, he's two years old, he was pulling on his ear. She thought he had an ear infection. Then she found out he was looking for his pacifier and he thought it was supposed to be in his ear because of my <laughs> 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 That's, that's awesome. Pretty, that's pretty good. I mean, maybe we maybe we should consider the three of us doing like a circus uh, sideshow <laughs> podcast if this right. uh, Great Trials <laughs> podcast doesn't work out. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> well, um, well, Greg, let me talk a little bit about you and uh, and and let our listeners know uh, who you are. Uh, Greg is a uh, founding partner of the law firm Beasley Allen Crow Methvin Portis and Miles, uh, better known as Beasley Allen, uh, based out of Montgomery, Alabama. You can look up Greg at BeasleyAllen.com and read all about him. And, uh, and Greg and his firm have had uh, just uh, tremendous results over the years. I think they measure their results in billions, not millions. Uh, so that tells you something about uh, Greg. Uh, in reading your, your bio, Greg, I learned that uh, you, before you were a lawyer, you worked for the railroad in Atlanta. Uh, and um, got transferred down to Montgomery, Alabama, saw that you could take night school uh, as a lawyer at the, uh, I think it was the Jones Law School, went to night school, and then began, uh, was it clerking for Jerry Beasley, your, your law partner now, uh, and actually worked for free uh, for Jerry um, so that you could learn the law practice and, uh, and then have, have certainly learned the craft because in addition to his $151 million verdict, uh, which was, uh, about two weeks ago, he's had a $122 million verdict against GM, a $114.5 million verdict, a $30 million verdict, a $26.25 million verdict, and a bunch of others, uh, and just a, a, a fantastic career. Uh, in addition, uh, Greg has been uh, a super lawyer for uh, the past 11 years uh, in a row. He's, he has been named in the best lawyers in America for the last five years. Uh, he was plaintiff's lawyer of the year in Montgomery, Alabama in 2012, uh, was named as litigator of the decade in 2010. Uh, and uh, even even I learned this, Greg, that you have a mock trial competition named after you, the J. Greg Allen trial competition at the uh, Thomas Good Jones School of Law. 
so it, it, we're just uh, so happy to have you on here, Greg. Well, proud to be here. And I, you know, it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of having gone to a, a non-accredited night law school and, um, it's uh, I can use it every now and then when some witness makes some dumb comment, I can tell them that I went to law school at night, but it wasn't last night, that sort of thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I, I know, Greg, that you and I over the years have done some of the similar cases. And, I, and one thing I uh, remember about you is I always run across your path up in the, uh, I think it's the Westin up in Detroit. Uh, where you uh, don't get to leave the airport and never actually go outside while you're taking depositions of many uh, corporate representatives and, and folks like that. Yeah, been there many times. Yeah, um, always the biodome. Experience. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so so Greg, the case that we're talking about today, and I'm going to give a bit of an overview of it, uh, is was called Lacey versus Empire Truck Sales LLC. Um, and, and and correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, but by the time this case got trialed, that was the only defendant that you were trying the case against. I, I saw that you had uh, Indiana Mills Manufacturing in there and some other defendants in there, but it looked like by the time the, the case went to trial, it was just Empire Truck Sales. Is that right? That, that's true. We had uh, Protanto settlements with Freightliner. Uh, we had a roof cr- crush claim against them for the, uh, it, it was a 2004 Freightliner M16 heavy truck. It's a right. straight line heavy truck. And then uh, uh, we also settled on a Protanto basis with IMMI, the seatbelt manufacturer for the truck. Right. So yes, the, 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 the remaining claim was against Empire. Um, and, and I should say your client was Colin Lacey. Uh, Colin was uh, rendered a paraplegic uh, as a result of the collision we're going to talk about. And the verdict in this case uh, was $13,797,856 uh, in compensatory damages and then another $5 million in punitive damages for a total verdict of uh, $18,797,856. And um, and essentially the case was that, uh, that Mr. Lacey was a truck driver for a company called FCC Environmental, uh, where he would basically uh, pick up oil uh, or use oil from uh, places like Walmart, Pet Boys, things like that after they're done and then deliver it to um, FCC Environmental. And he had had his truck in for service, his Freightliner in for service uh, at a company called Empire Truck Sales, uh, which was, uh, I think the place where he got his service was Mobile, uh, Alabama. And, um, and essentially, uh, during the inspection, uh, they noticed that there were some seals that were leaking. And so when they um, were changing out the seals, uh, they had to loosen what's called the uh, lateral control rod or the track bar. And, and Greg, I'll let you get into talking more about the, the details of this. But essentially, um, that is what controls the rear of the truck, the rear differential, and, and ke- keeps it on line with the front part of the truck so that you don't lose control of it. Um, and um, they had loosened that, basically caused it to become uh, completely detached. Uh, and as Mr. Lacey was driving down in Florida on in July of 2011 uh, on I-10, uh, lost control of the vehicle, 
uh, and it, it went into a uh, sideways slide or a yaw as we call it, uh, and it rolled over. He was ejected uh, and uh, caused to be a, a paraplegic from the collision. Correct. Is that a, that's a very basic overview. And accurate. That, that is a very accurate summary. Um, uh, the, um, the, the lateral control rod, they should not have actually had to uh, loosen it. And we can't, can't understand why it was done, but we know it was, it was done by Empire. Um, he originally uh, took the truck in just, just for preventative maintenance. He actually, you know, his company was out of Louisiana, but he was stationed in Mobile. And uh, he um, would, you know, drive the truck up and down the interstate, going to Walmart and collecting used motor oil until he got it full, full. And then he would drive over to Louisiana to offload the truck. And so um, uh, he carried the truck in, uh, I think it was June the 7th of 2011 to Empire just for a PM service preventative maintenance. And the, um, at that time, the person inspected actually looked at the lateral control rod and noted that it was in place. It was part of their inspection. But he did notice that there were some leaking seals on the rear differential. There's, it, this truck actually has two uh, axles in the rear. It was the front of the two axles that they had a leaking seal. And so um, he brought, he um, uh, actually, it was still in uh, from June the 7th. On June the 9th, the, uh, another employee replaced the seal and uh, at that time took the control rod loose for some reason. And we don't, we never were able to figure out why. Uh, he was having difficulty because we know from the, uh, uh, one of the employees said that he could do the seal replacement in about two and a half hours. And for this uh, other employee who, who did the work, it took four hours. So he was having problems of some sort. But um, shortly after that, uh, Colin took the truck and he noticed that it started vibrating and bouncing at, at interstate speeds. And so he brought it back uh, July 11th, which was just a few days later. And unfortunately, they assigned the same fellow who, who replaced the seals to do the, the suspension inspection. And he just he just missed it, and um, and then at, when Colin went back to pick it up, uh, and that morning, which is July 14th, um, he uh, he left out, and the accident was that afternoon. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client. A lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients 
in all aspects, please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, and there was there was quite a bit of contention between the parties uh, about exactly what happened. It, it I mean, it, reading the opening and closing in this, Greg, uh, I mean, it looked like they did just about everything they could to try and blame uh, your client uh, for uh, what happened, and and basically just deny uh, that there was anything wrong with the truck at all. Um, so, I mean, as, as far as some of the things that I noticed that they were blaming him for is, uh, first of all, they claimed, I mean, there was, there was a, a claim that when he left that the ABS lights, the uh, anti-lock brake system light came on, showed that it wasn't working. So he calls back and says, um, you know, the, the ABS light comes on, they can't reproduce it. So they basically do nothing about it. And then, uh, first of all, they say he never made a phone call. Uh, they say, although they did admit he came back and then they say, uh, well, he left without, you know, against our advice. Uh, and then, and then during the collision itself, uh, they, they basically made it sound like, well, it was really heavy rain and sounded to me like they uh, were claiming that, uh, that he hydroplane somehow in a, in a, uh, you know, in a, in a 18 wheeler. And, uh, when every witness and expert, uh, basically said it's impossible for a heavy truck to hydroplane. That's, that's, that's true. They, uh, it, there was an all-out assault on, on Colin because, let me paint the picture for you, Colin, Colin had a, a real, real difficult childhood. He, he, uh, his, while his dad was an uh, engineer at Chevron, his brother was a PhD in engineering. Um, Colin had a learning disability. And he also uh, became obsessive-compulsive uh, as a child, had seizures, uh, and they, uh, he, he had a really hard time um, uh, learning and, and competing basically with his, with his uh, brother. And um, he, he just, he tried college, uh, dropped out two times and um, just couldn't compete. So he, he wound up becoming a, a truck driver and he had always had memory problems. And especially after this accident, uh, he had very difficulty, uh, a, a d- difficult time communicating. And in deposition, there were a lot of, I don't remember, I don't know, and, and uh, answers. And we, we couldn't, we knew that he had some issue going on, and we didn't know if it was uh, a head injury from being thrown from the truck. And one neuropsychologist believed that was the case. They had two other neuropsychologists that, that examined him and said that he was just over-medicated because he was in such pain. Right. And um, and as it turns out now, we know that it was medication because you could talk to him on the phone and he makes he's very eloquent um, in, in his speech pattern. So they, they saw him as a as a, a good target because there was some evidence from there was one witness that said it was raining very heavy at the time of the accident. And then there was another person said, no, it was raining lightly. And then a third person said it had not even started raining at the time of the accident. And so they, you know, it was, it was basically, um, let's blame him. Uh, um, another interesting factor is that the case was, although we filed it in Mobile where FCC and Empire were located, the accident actually happened in Florida. So we had to apply Florida law, which is, you know, is comparative, uh, just totally different from Alabama law. So, um, it, it, it was a, it was basically, let's go after Colin. And, um, 
I was quite frankly very worried because his his stories, you know, were consistent on on exactly how the accident happened. That he felt a big vibration in the truck and and then it you know lost control, but he was inconsistent in many many things. And so we we decided to just lay it on the line. Uh, he had actually. Uh, on his job application, misrepresented some things. He had said that he was a college graduate, which was not true. Uh, he had said that uh, he had a 3.5 GPA, which was not right. true. Right. And so, when, in opening statement, we got up there and I and I just you know laid it out that he had had you know obsessive compulsive disorder. He had had a rough childhood. He was on Prozac, and that and that he had misrepresented these things in his application. He needed he needed to work. And later. We found out that the jury thought that that was admirable to go ahead and lay out all the bad things, and they didn't hold it against him. Yeah, I um, I, I saw that in there, and and we've, uh, you know, when we talk to um, you know, our lawyers here, and when we talk to other lawyers, uh, I, I mean, I'm a big big advocate of, you know, if you've got a weakness, if you've got some problem with your case, just hit it head on, be direct with the jury, be honest with the jury, uh, and then show them why it doesn't have anything to do with the case. Um, or if it does, how it affects it. I, um, but I, I saw, you know, uh, how early you hit it in your opening, the fact that he had been untruthful in his application uh, and, you know, hadn't disclosed that he had, um, he had, had been fired before. Uh, and I thought the way that you laid it out was just, uh, just you know, uh, uh, really well and, um, and just takes all the steam out of, uh, you know, what the defense is going to try and do in their case, and then it gets the jury kind of wondering, well, why is the defense beating on this? The plaintiffs have already admitted that this is an issue. Well, in, in addition to that, he, um, because of his processing speed, um, when you'd ask him a question, he would think, it took him a while to think, and sometimes you had to ask the question two or three times before he got the question, and then he, then he would answer. And I, I told the jury that's exactly what they were gonna see. And uh, by the time he got ready to testify, I've never seen a jury and I, he was in his wheelchair. We put him right in front of the jury and uh, I sat in a chair by him. And um, he, when he was having difficulty with the questions, a jury all were sitting up on their seat and were engrossed by what he had to say. And um, it, it was unbelievable how, how credible he, he came across. And, and my, my legal assistant, I think, described it best. She said by the time he finished testifying, there was not a juror there that thought he had, had misrepresented anything. Well, and one of the things that I noticed, um, one of the other things I noticed in your opening that I think you prepared the jury for that um, I imagine was pretty effective was, you know, you went in ahead and told them um, for, for, I guess, the, the mechanic, this guy who um, seemed to have uh, been struggling with some of the prepares, um, I mean, the repairs, Mr. Morgan, you had prepared them in your opening. This guy already told us in his deposition, he doesn't remember anything. He has no recollection of this event. So he's not going to be of any use to us in this trial. Um, well, and if I, when he came in, that was the interesting thing. He was an expert. He, he knew right. and remembered everything. And it was, <laughs> it was almost comical. And uh, it turned out perfectly. Could not have scripted it any better. Yeah. Is that something that you... Um, that in your openings for when you go to trial, is that something that you do a lot? If you have a witness who's um, uncooperative in their deposition or who, you know, genuinely doesn't remember something in their deposition, is that something that you kind of bring out in your opening and sort of prepare the jury for it at, at the beginning? 
Sure. I mean, because I, I knew he would probably, he had to defend himself because he was very arrogant and belligerent. He was no longer working for Empire by the time I took his deposition. And uh, it was, it, you know, he uh, didn't really threaten me, but it was close to that. And uh, <laughs> so he, 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 he just, he was a terrible witness for them. Another wrinkle in the case was, uh, you know, I mentioned the um, weather and we had one lady who said it was it was a total monsoon going on when she stopped and she said she was the first person on the scene and i think she she had come through a rainstorm uh basically he was chasing a rainstorm at that time of the year in fort walton that's just the way it is and uh so the streets were wet but uh the witness the two witnesses coming from the opposite direction had different stories and the first lady said it was raining you know very hard but then there was a, an Air Force helicopter pilot right behind her said, no, it had been raining hard. But by the time, you know, we saw the accident, it had, had this, you know, it was a light rain. And then uh, to, as things went on, we finally found uh, the person that had actually made the call uh, to 911 who was traveling in the same direction as Mr. Lacey. And it, interesting, the reason we couldn't find her, she was in jail. And so we had literally took her uh, deposition while she was uh, behind bars. And uh, but she she was an excellent witness. And as it turns out, had told Empire early on, they had found her before us and told him that he was not speeding. It was not raining and that she had been following him for miles. And then she right after she passed him in her rearview mirror, she saw the truck go out of control. It was wow. It was good as it could be and um what actually happened and that that was what was confusing uh it, that when they left that track bar for that control rod at a certain speed it gets out of sync and the uh, rear end is just basically wobbling it's going one side to the other it's like steering the vehicle and when that happened colin uh, hit the brakes and unfortunately empire had done something to the abs system that analog brake system it, it was fine when he carried it to them, but that morning, as soon as he left Empire, the ABS light came on. He made the phone call, and they said, don't worry, it'll, it'll go off. Don't worry about it. So he had no analog brake system, and when that truck started vibrating, his training was to hit the brakes and stabilize the truck. And, of course, if the ABS is working, you know, you can hit it as hard as you want. So the truck, basically the wheels locked up when he, when he stabbed the brakes, and uh, and that's what got it uh, yawing at about 40 degrees when it went off off into the median. What sorts uh, of um, things did you do to 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 show the jury mechanically what was happening to this truck? Because if they're not familiar or if they don't, you know, do their own car maintenance or um, then I think you know, just hearing the terms can get really confusing. Did you, you know, what kind of, what kind of stuff did you do demonstratively to kind of help the jury understand how everything worked? Well, we had uh, really good photographs. And by the way, when we, you know, eventually found in the roll rod loose, it had one bolt still in it and you could tell the bolt was worn out. It had been vibrating. So it, it is, you know, it, it set the scene and that made it very understandable that along with the diagrams of how the control rod works. The biggest thing was that if you look at the owners or the OEM manual for the, for the truck, it talks about in, you know, suspension inspections, which is what Mr. Morgan did when 
Colin brought it back telling them it was shaking. And, and there's a big warning that if they fail to perform the inspection properly, that it could cause uh, loss of vehicle control, uh, personal injury, or death. And, and they, did, they, they admitted they did not go through that OEM process. Uh, in addition to that, we had uh, you know, the photographs, we had uh, models, um, the, and uh, you know, the jury knew quite well what it was. We actually uh, had a uh, lateral control rod so they could see see what it was, and it's pretty simple uh, as far as what it does. It just connects the it connects the uh, rear differential to the frame, but it, it oscillates. It goes up and down, and so it it doesn't do anything but just keep that rear end from wobbling and uh, and getting getting out of alignment. And so, um, it, and it was pretty obvious that that um, that's how you know how it works and they they had a, i think had a real good understanding uh, in addition to that the, the defendants decided they were going to go test it and uh they they got a, a sister truck and ran it down the interstate to show that it didn't it didn't wobble with them uh but but unfortunately um they um, were they had a video camera what uh, you know on the control rod and when they made a turn when they were stopping you could see how far out of alignment it got and this is the crazy thing. For some reason, they they the they killed the sound on the videotape at about the time it should have started vibrating. Oh my and, god! And, and you could right. tell they had tur- they had turned it down. And, yeah. and so we we just left, didn't do anything, didn't say anything about it till the expert was up there, you know, testifying. And then I asked him. I said, "Well, you know, why did you turn the sound down?" on this video and he said i didn't do it i said well did the lawyers do it and i looked over and it looked like they were going to go under the table (laughs) and uh that was you know one of those trial moments as you are fully aware of yes (laughs) yeah and greg talk about it it looked like you all had done some testing of the tires because um they were uh i mean essentially it sounded like they were claiming that since this was a hydroplane or a hydroplane type uh, accident that um, there was no visible skid marks, no uh, nothing on the tires. But then you all actually showed marks on the tire of, of a forty degree angle where the the um, tread had been uh, worn off from from the slide. Did you do some some testing in addition to that? No, we didn't have to do testing, Steve. It, it was. I mean, I don't know why they took that position because the tires were just it, they were almost flat spotted where he had hit the brakes and then then as the slide developed there were 40 degree uh marks on the tires and uh i I never quite understood why they took that position because that was the the best evidence we had of what happened and uh, our expert just wore them out pretty good on that um go ahead steve Oh, I, I was just going to say the the in uh, the hydroplane thing really got me, and I know your client uh, said, you know, what, right after the collision had happened, uh, said something to the effect of, "Well, I must have hydroplaned or something like that," and I'm, I'm sure that's why the defense was trying to jump all over that. But with even their own experts saying that a, a truck like that doesn't hydroplane, what made them sort of go after that defense? You think? I, I have no idea, uh, but you're right. That's where they picked it up. It was because Colin said I must have hydroplane, and of course I turned that on him by saying that you know they had a guy up under this truck who had an opportunity, to, and he was trained to do a, an inspection, and he he's got a warning that says if he doesn't do this inspection properly, could wind up getting somebody killed, and yet they want Colin to diagnose the problem, and right. the you know three seconds that he had from the time he hit the brakes until it rolled over. 
So uh, it, it, I didn't think that that helped them a lot. But um, anyway, that's that was the position they took. And then their own when their own experts came and said, no, it, it, big trucks don't hydroplane. Didn't help them much. Yeah. Well, and, and so uh, going along those lines of the defense sort of strategy of blaming every, everything and everyone else, um, I noticed that they, it looks like they wanted to apportion fault or um, put, place some of the blame on FCC, Collins employer. And I was just wondering what their, what the basis for that was. The, the, it was an older truck. It was, um, it, it was probably at a point where it would needed to be retired. But, um, you know, Colin said it, it drove fine until this, this issue came up, but, uh, but, but they, there was an apportionment on the verdict. They, um, under Florida law, you know, they can apportion damages and they, they did, um, assign 20% to the seatbelt uh, because it was clear that the seatbelt did release in the crash. This particular seatbelt has a false latch problem and uh, it fit perfectly with what happened. I mean, you know, Colin was telling people on the scene, I was wearing my seatbelt and, um, and we, we did some testing that uh, shows clearly if you don't put the seatbelt buckle in exactly in the right way, it will look like it's latched, but will is not really latched. And so they they the jury assigned twenty percent to uh, IMMI and eighty percent to Empire, but they found zero percent liability for Colin, zero percent for um, actually zero zero percent for Freightliner, and zero percent for uh, FCC, his employer. Yeah, and I noticed in the on the verdict form, one of the things that they were trying to apportion fault to FCC for was for hiring and supervising Colin. So uh, basically, uh, trying to blame FCC for having Colin as an employee. Yeah, they were. The, the uh, but the the um, corporate representative for the FCC said they were real happy with Colin. He was doing a great job. He had not worked there long before this accident happened, but but he liked his job and they liked him. Said they said he was doing a great job for. Him. Yeah. And then I, I wanted to know on the, on the IMMI, uh, the finding there, and I, the jury apportioned uh, 20% fault to IMMI. Um, was there any evidence that was put in front of the jury or was it just that the doctors had said, it sounded like the doctor said he had seatbelt signs on his body, that he had, he had been wearing a seatbelt. It was, it, was that basically the, the basis of finding that uh, something had happened with the seatbelt since he was ejected? No, it's more than that. They actually, um, under Florida law, they can, you know, they can play uh, depositions that, you know, to apportion fault. And so they played our depositions of the uh, IMMI uh, corporate representatives. So it made it pretty clear there was a bad seatbelt there. And so that, that's how that happened. I see. Okay, got it. Well, and it's, uh, you know, you, you had mentioned, this is kind of shifting gears a little bit, but um, you had mentioned, you know, that Colin had not been driving for FCC long. I noticed in your, I can't remember if it was in your opening or your closing, um, but that he had also, I guess just a few weeks before his wreck, he had just recently met the, his girlfriend that was now basically his main caretaker at the time of trial. That's right. That's right. She, uh, she took care of him. Um, uh, it was, which was quite amazing. Had just met and, um, but she, you know, she fell in love with him and, and it was uh, to the, 
gut wrenching to hear what she had to do to to help him with his you know bowel program and and all that. It was um, uh, interesting testimony. Um, yeah. Well, I thought that was a really effective part of your closing to say, you know, the defense is trying to make Colin look like a bad guy. And, you know, if he's such a bad guy, you know, he met this, you know, he met this woman basically three weeks before this happens to him. And she's still, you know, she was still with him taking care of him and just goes to show you what kind of, what kind of person he really was. I mean, I understand his parents, um, his parents testified too, but how did you sort of bring out, I know you mentioned how um, meaningful Colin's testimony was, but what other things did you do to sort of paint the picture of who Colin really was? We had his uh, parents testify and uh, they, they, you know, they're just really, really good people. And uh, they had a, I mean, he, he, he grew up in a loving home and uh, he, you could tell that he, he just, he, he did what he could with what he had. Um, it, you know, he just simply didn't have the capacity to be an engineer like his father and his brother. And they, um, and that, he, you know, he was going to be a truck driver and he had resigned himself to that. And, um, I just think the jury, you know, realized that this, this is the kind of accident that could happen to either me or somebody in my family. And I also, you know, presented the, the, case is basically a workplace case when you think about it uh, somebody like Colin the workplace is their truck and you know they're just like you and I are entitled to a safe workplace truck drivers should have a safe workplace and they depended on these you know professionals to to do their job and um you know I, I just think the jury you know realized that, that that they were dealing with a sincere um family and um that that they and it's somebody they wanted to help right was was colin at, at, at the time of trial was he able to um attend the whole thing or did y'all just sort of have him you know introduce the jury to him and have him come for his testimony or how 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 did that piece play out no he sat there the whole time and uh it's hard to describe colin he was he's such a good kid and he was so apologetic and and I told him when the case started I said look if, you know I know you have to attend to the your you know bowel and bladder issues and uh you you need to go let me know and I looked over one day and you know during trial and he just had perspiration just running off of him and and I finally I said what is wrong and he he said that you know, that he had to go to the bathroom and uh, he didn't bother to tell anybody. And then when he, I said, well, you, you need to go. And I asked his court to give us a you know, break. And, and he was so apologetic. It, it, it was just unbelievable uh, that he, he was so sorry to interrupt everybody. And he kept apologizing the whole time for, you know, in, as if he was bothering me by taking my time up, you know. And uh, right. it was just a, uh, it, it just a very unique person. Wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was I wanted to go back for a second to the testimony of the uh, the girlfriend because it sounded like you all had um, some some video or, or had her at least walk through what it took to care for him. Did you use a day in the life video or anything like that? Uh, did not. Uh, we we again we had the the live testimony. We had uh, our, our um, you know the damage witnesses. Uh, 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 Anna Elmer's out of the Shepherd Center uh, gave a video deposition. It was one of the strongest depositions I've ever seen. Um, she, you know, when she was asked to introduce herself, she, she 
told her name and then said that she was a physician and asked what kind of physician. She said, I'm the kind of physician you never want to meet. Right. If you're my patient, you're going to be my patient for a long time and something drastic has just happened to you. I mean, it was, you know, fantastic testimony. And, and she went through the description and I'll never forget. We had a juror that sat on the front row. And when we started talking about using these catheters, and how often he had to catheterize himself every time he would squint and just, I mean, you could tell it just really affected him. Right. And, uh, we had uh, the um, uh, one of the, I can't remember which person, it may have been the girlfriend that got up there and we did get, let her take a catheter there and show how it worked. And I mean, it's, it looks like a, I mean, it's really horrible to think how it works. And, mm-hmm. and when, she did that. I thought the juror was going to come out. <laughs> and then, and so, so in the, in the damages portion of the case, we're asking for, you know, compensatory damages. We brought the catheter thing back up and we had calculated that if he lived his life expectancy, uh, it's like 200,000 times he was going to have to have a catheter put in. And, um, you know, that was, I thought, pretty effective. Wow. Right. And what a great, I mean, it's, it's a great illustration. I mean, it's horrible that he's, that, you know, Colin's having to go through that, obviously, but it's a great illustration because it's so, it's so specific. You've, you've explained it to the jury. They can see it and it clearly affects them. And it's just one piece of the stuff that he's going to have to go through for the rest of his life. Right. Absolutely. Um, one other thing that was interesting, I, you know, as, as trial lawyers, y'all will appreciate this. Uh, I, when I put Colin up for deposition early on, he had told me that he had made a phone call when, you know, when his ABS light came on soon as soon as he left uh, Empire that morning. And, um, you know, and I said, are you sure you made that call? Because we didn't have his phone records at the time. He, he just mentioned that. And I said, I don't know if we want to talk about that in. In, in this deposition, if they ask you, tell them, but don't volunteer that. And because he said, no, he said, Mr. Allen, I'll tell you, I made that call. And, and, and I thought, man, this is, this is going to be bad if he didn't make the call because right. his memory was so bad. And I was just like, Oh goodness. And sure enough, he, he blurted out, well, I made a phone call and told him that <laughs> 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 light was on. I'm thinking, Oh goodness. Oh goodness. And so anyway, we, we finally got his telephone records. He had, he, he did his checkout and signed his log that he was leaving empire that morning at 7 a.m. The phone call was 709 back to empire. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, and, I, and yeah, it, go ahead. I, I was just going to ask, I mean, I saw the, in part of your clothes where you were sort of going for going through all the ways that, that they were trying to blame Colin, that they just, were they just claiming that phone call never happened, even though there were phone records? They, th- there was an implication that he may have called and got the answer machine and nobody talked to him. They, they had no one that said they ever got, got the phone call. Of course, now their position was, and I'm certain they, they doctored the records after the, when they found out he had had crashed that afternoon. Um, they put in there that he had took the, the truck. Uh, against their advice, even though they had a policy, they should have made him sign if he was actually taking the truck against their advice. They had no, nothing to show they ever did that. Uh, in addition, if you if you put the timeline together, Colin got there at six in the morning and said that they were they started to pull the truck around and then they pulled it into the shop and they were working on on something with with it and and that's when we think they realized the ABS light was on, and um, then then he again signed his log at seven that morning 
made the call at 709. So everything fit with what Colin was saying, that, that they, they knew that there was an AVS problem. They had done something to make the light go off. And shortly after he left, the light came on. And um, that was, you know, pretty compelling. Yeah. Did you, did anybody ever give testimony on what exactly happened with the ABS or just, I mean, I, I know that once you see the brakes locking up or the tires locking up, you can tell that obviously the ABS wasn't working, but it, did anybody testify to what exactly was wrong with them? We, we never knew exactly what the problem was. The, but what we did was we, we uh, energized the truck in its wrecked condition and the ABS light came on. And they said they, they had experts to say that that was wrong, that, that, that um, um, you know, if, if it had come on, it was, it was his fault. It was, you know, it, 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 several, they were going in all directions, but trying to make it confusing. But it was clear the ABS was not, not functioning properly. I mean, the lo otherwise the brakes couldn't have locked up and the, and the tire skid patches were, I mean, very clear um, that the tires had locked up. This episode of the Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Greg, talk a little bit about, I mean, I, I saw how you wove the theme in of workplace safety, and I, I thought that was done very well. And then also just that they're violating the rules where they were ignoring the the manual from uh, Freightliner. Um, did you all uh, focus group the case and, and did, did, did that bring out any uh, strengths or weaknesses that you it changed up your, your trial strategy? Not really. I mean, we had not formalized focus groups, but we had just asked people, you know, this is what, what happened. What do you think? And, um, and, and I was getting pretty good feedback. Uh, the, you know, everybody was concerned about Colin's memory and, his inability to, to, to describe things. So that was the, the, the biggest factor, but, but no, we did not do a, a formal focus group. Um, go ahead. Were you able to talk to the jury after the verdict? We got a uh, word. Well, I talked to one juror in particular. Uh, she wrote me a letter and, and was, you know, thankful that she, she said that when she was originally selected, she was nervous and did not want to serve, but she said it didn't take long to realize it was a, it was a good thing. 
and uh, was just, you know, wanting me to pass to Colin that she was going to pray for him. And that, wow. uh, so I called her and, and she, you know, told me that about how they, how the jury reacted to my comments about the things that Colin had done in the past that, that he was regretful, you know, for doing with including, you know, misrepresentations on the, on his uh, application. But she said that they, they thought that was uh, admirable to do that and it, uh, admirable to do that and that um, they didn't hold it against him. And so, you know, that was the feedback that we did, did get. Um, the, the, I know, I don't know if y'all want to talk about this, but, you know, we did enter into a high-low agreement while mm-hmm. the jury was out, which was, was something different and unique uh, for this particular case. Yeah, and, you know, we've talked about high-lows before on the, uh, on the podcast, but just to remind everybody, basically, that's where the parties come into an agreement that, uh, depending on what the verdict is, uh, there will be a, uh, a cap on the low amount. Um, let's just, you know, if you take $1, $1 might be the low and then $10 might be the high, you know, if you, so no matter what the verdict is, there's a cap on that. And, uh, and I know Greg's was much, much higher than $10, but I was just using that as an example. Uh, but, but, uh, but yeah, high, high lows, uh, can be very effective. And, and, um, and we've uh, tried cases both with high lows and without, and it, it, um, um, certainly can, uh, can help that by when the case is, is done it's it's truly over and right uh, right that was one of the things we just we just talked about on our previous episode that a lot of a lot of people unless you're unfortunately in the situation of having your own case or uh, then you don't really know even if you're on the jury you don't really know that there can be this whole process after you render your verdict where the verdict can be appealed and that that process can take years before the plaintiff even if they win before they see a dollar of the judgment so um, that's another uh, positive thing about a, a high-low, which I didn't even know what those were until I think I was in working in my first trial at this firm and <laughs> right. practicing for like four months. But, um, you know, and the jury obviously never finds out that they exist. They, they deliberate, or at least they don't know on the front end. They just deliberate and they render the verdict the way they would otherwise. This is something that's worked out kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, we'd had a mediator working on the case for a good long time, and and we just couldn't get anywhere on the on on the case value. Um, and so, uh, I during the process of the case, I, I was feeling really good about it uh, as as things went along. And so, at some point, they they made another offer in the case, which was not adequate. And I basically said, the only way I'm going to settle it is with a high low. And and so, for the last two or three days. Um, we negotiated a high low and weren't, weren't even really close on that uh, until uh, I actually got a text from the mediator uh, right after the jury went out and, and we were still way apart. And I think ultimately I, I told them that I would take um, 2 million low and 14 million high, which means basically even if we had lost the case, they would have had to pay $2 million. But even if we'd gotten a hundred million dollar verdict, they would only have to pay fourteen million. Uh, but the the fourteen was a I thought you know reasonable, and I, I certainly let them know I was going to ask for more than that. And so we we were still way apart on the high low until the jury sent a note out asking that they send back to the jury my damage chart. And right. As soon as, 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 <laughs> yeah. As, as soon as that happened, then the mediator said, 
you know, we'll take you two to 14. And so they <laughs> rushed over with a, a third lawyer and signed the, the documents while the jury was out. And, uh, we, and so that took a lot of pressure off of us. Um, and ultimately it, it's interesting if you factor in the verdict and you take away the 20% of comparative fault for IMMI, right. it hits about 16 million, something like that, or 15 and a half. And so we got 14 paid in hand, basically for a 16 something million dollar verdict. Right, right. right. For, for, pretty good got it right then and you know within 30 days you know we he was funded and and this is what you know m many people don't appreciate and, and you know Colin was living in abject poverty when I met him uh he was a, 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 a unbelievably small house he couldn't get in his own bathroom it was it was horrible living conditions um after this verdict He's now been able to move uh, to a, and buy a new home with an elevator um, near the Shepherd Center. And his life is still difficult. I mean, he's every day, he, his whole life revolves around taking care of himself. But he can get the help he, he needs. And he's right there at Shepherd Center. And I actually met with Dr. Elmers on another case recently, and she said he was doing great. And they had reduced his medications to the point where he, he just – his communication skills are, are excellent. Uh, he's come to my firm to visit me a few times, all the way from Atlanta, and um, he's just doing great. And he's lost weight. He exercises, and um, his life is is while it's difficult and always will be, is so much better than it was before. And that's what we do this for. Yeah, I mean that. Those are the uh, things that make everything worth it. I mean, all the the late nights and the uh, you know the fights you get into and the the years of battling out with one defendant to know that you uh, uh, can uh, change somebody's life for the better uh, uh, just makes it all worth it. Yeah, that is great to hear. That's great to hear that that Colin's doing well. And I and I do think that's a, a good point to bring up, Greg, is that a lot of non lawyers don't know that. As attorneys, there's only so there's only certain things that we can do for our clients. We can't give them money um, to get them the medical care that they can deserve that that they deserve or that they need. So you know, we of course we want to do that. We want to get them the resources that they can to take care of themselves. But it's definitely it can be really hard because we're working for people that we know are in really tough. Uh, you know, dire straits financially and kind of their circumstances. And all we can do is work our hardest on the case and hope that, you know, we can get a judgment or a settlement that can take care of them. Absolutely. Uh, you know, he, he was a, a deserving young man. He did nothing wrong. And, and this could happen to anybody. Uh, there's simply, I mean, you have to rely on the people that design the vehicles and that work on the vehicles to make them safe. And, and unfortunately he, Happened to have a mechanic that just either didn't care or, or you know, just f failed to do his job. And so um, it's, it's, it's a terrible situation to be in. He still has to deal with pressure sores, um, but at least he's, you know, he's got the ability to take care of them. Um, and he still, you know, has to have the bowel program, the catheterizations and all of those things. But, but, but his life is much better uh, than it was before. And he, and that's one thing he, he, when he calls me, he, he every time brings up the fact that, that we were able to make his life much, much better. Um, 
Greg, I wanted to ask you about something that you mentioned when you were working out the high-low. You said you were working through a mediator. Um, I've never actually done that at trial. What, how, how did that work? Was the mediator there at trial, or was this over the phone, or how, how did that work? It was over the phone or by text. Um, you know, it, it, um, the mediator just stayed involved. Um, because I think they, I think they also sensed that the case was going well for us. And, um, uh, so the mediator would, you know, he would, most of it was text messages and actually I was getting texts during trial offers and, and that sort of thing. And I, you know, he was quite, uh, I, I got to know him quite well. He's a great guy, good mediator. And, uh, I'll never forget. He, he offered some amount of money and I just, uh, I told him no. And uh, without a response, and, and he said I was not making him feel good about his mediator self or something <laughs> right, like right, that. Right. It was it was quite comical, but it, but um, yeah, the mediator. I mean, in in a lot of our cases, the mediator will stay involved uh, even during the trial. Just but even though they physically aren't there, they'll they'll make the phone calls to, as a go between from the defense side and and uh, try to keep things moving. Yeah, that's one thing that, you know, we've always, uh, um, you know, struggled with and we've sort of worked out a policy at our firm that when one of the partners is trying a case, um, then uh, hold on. Um, when one of the partners is trying a case, then the uh, other partner who's not trying the case will be in charge of the negotiations. Because uh, w- one thing that I always hate when I'm in the middle of trial is is then getting distracted by uh, negotiating a you know potential settlement when I'm trying to prepare for my witnesses the next day or prepare for closing or you know whatever's whatever's happening so we've tried to uh, institute that to, that um, that somebody else will do the um, that somebody else will do the um, talking um, that's probably I mean yeah we probably should do that <laughs> but uh, but we you know we kept the you know the conversations were fairly short but uh, that's a good point you make a lot of people don't realize in a case like this, it's like a marathon. And right. literally from the time you get up, you work, you work, you work, you, you have just a little time to, to have meals and then you work all the way until time to, to go to bed and then you dream about it all night. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, start it's over the, <laughs> next, next day. So, yeah, I mean, we talk about it all the time. I mean, you know, my sleep during trial is just terrible. I mean, I, you know, I never get fully to sleep that I feel like, and I, you know, wake up all the time and then I'm usually up by, you know, three thirty, four o'clock, something like that. Oh, so. And I don't, and I don't eat. It's the best yeah. diet I've ever been on. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> stick, but. The trial trial is the best diet I've ever been on. <laughs> There's no doubt. It, it, yeah, I think everybody goes through that about it. it's a, <laughs> different degrees. But then it's over. I always put it right back on. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We always go overboard the other way. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, well, Greg, I want to talk about a couple of other things because uh, you know when I was reading about uh, you know sort of the things that that um, that. Uh, Empire was supposed to do and what went wrong. It seemed like it could have been a fairly complex case, but you did a really good job of just keeping it simple for the jury. And can you just talk a little bit about some of the things you did to try and help make sure the jury could understand, you know, all the mechanical parts of a truck and what they do and, you know, and then, and what the defendants did wrong and, and how you just keep that in a nice uh, simple format so that everybody can understand it. Well, you just have to lay it out. And I mean, you know, the, the, the way this, control rod worked is was really pretty simple and and once they saw the bolt 
sitting there uh, with that, that was still in the control rod, but not attached to the rear differential, they, it was pretty obvious that that's not supposed to happen. I mean, there, you know, and, and what was interesting, this case had actually been turned down by another law firm because they, they couldn't, they couldn't figure out what happened. They just assumed that Colin just went out of control and, and, and or hydroplane and, and rolled over. Uh, any, any single vehicle accident like this, as you know, you start off uh, behind the, you know, behind the eight ball because you got to figure out why did the thing go out of control. Right. But when, when I met with Colin, he, you know, again, it was hard for him to describe anything, but he kept saying, I, 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 the, mach- the, the truck started shaking and I, and I hit the brakes. And so from that, we knew there had to be something wrong. And so we went to look at the truck and actually it was about the second or third time uh, of actually looking at the truck. We realized that they had, the frame rails were uncovered. The tank had separated from the truck when it rolled over, but they had stacked parts of the truck on top of the frame. And so we, we decided let's pull all this junk off, get another look at it. And when we pulled everything off, there's the control rod. It was disconnected. Right. And of course with, with that, you know, it was, we were off to the races and it was just something that the jury could, could visualize themselves. And we had a, you know, the picture of the seal that Mr. Morgan had replaced. I mean, it literally is a, is, you know, six inches away from the control rod. And so you, know, you factor that in with, with the fact that Colin said he had no shaking. They had never complained to anything about the truck until that seal, that rear seal was replaced. And immediately thereafter it started that shaking problem. It, it just made sense. I mean, it all fit together. So I, it really wasn't a, you know, it was, it was one of those things that the jury could really, you know, they could really understand once they just saw those, those, those few simple photographs. Yeah. And I, I saw your points about the locking nuts that they're not supposed to come out. And so, you know, that you, you know, that it was never put in what, but how did the defense handle that? I mean, did they just say nose in and this is, was accident damage that came detached because of the rollover or what did, what were they saying? No, they, they just said somebody else must have done it. Uh, that, that, um, it, it, you know, they did, they simply didn't do it. There was no reason for Morgan to get touch the control rod by replacing those seals and which we agreed with. And we couldn't, we couldn't understand why he would have done it, but he clearly did it. And, and I told the jury a little bit about circumstantial evidence that we would never, ever have a video of, of him replacing the seal. And so you got to draw some, some inferences and, and the inference is, the truck was not shaking, had never shaked, had never had a problem until they carried it in, until the seal was worked on. And immediately thereafter, uh, he, he complained that, that the truck had a shaking problem. So it's just one of those things that, I mean, it, it, it was not hard to get from A to B once you laid out all the facts. There was one other kicker in the case, too, you might appreciate. Um, the truck had a, a nav track system on it which keeps up with the, you know, the speed and the location and all that. And, uh, they had hired a nav track expert to come in to try to say that, that Colin was speeding, even though it, it, it only pings at certain times. And he had gone over the speed limit, but not much, some miles up the road, but they did not have anything as far as the speed at the time. And of course, we had uh, the testimony of the young lady that was in jail saying he was definitely not speeding. She actually said she said she had passed him going about 73 miles an hour. 
And so, so we had all, all, all of that, that set up. And, um, um, anyway, the nav track expert, um, <laughs> when he was on the stand, they didn't anticipate this. And that was, well, let's look back at the nav track for the truck while it was at empire. And he, and I, and he admitted that, well, the truck never moved. I said, it sat there for three days and it never moved. No. I said, well, how did you, how do you suppose Mr. Morgan did the test drive that he right. charged? And he said, uh, I don't know. Right. Right. <laughs> then, yeah. I, then, I, then, then I pointed out to him, I said, let's look at the charges. He had charged, you know, his time for working on the truck. I said, tell the jury how much time he charged for this test drive. And this, of course, this is an Avtrak expert. He don't know any, you know, but, but I let him look at the records. I said, how much time? And it was just a bill, a time, a time sheet. He said, one minute. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, how in the world are you going to test drive a truck at 70 miles an hour for one minute? Right. I don't right. think, I don't think, I don't think you can. <laughs> so, so it's just, you know, you, you know, Steve, to have you yeah. tried all the cases you've tried, you get those, you know, those Kodak moments. Yeah. And it, it's just one of those things where the jury starts, you know, they just think, yeah, right. And, and another, another Kodak moment was one of the, uh, the expert that they had on the, uh, control issue. He was, he was, he was there to try to say that, a, you know, track bar won't, um, won't cause loss of control. Uh, and he was calling it something other than a track bar. And he's, and, and I said, why don't you call it a track bar? And he said, because that's not what it is. And he had some other term for it that I'd never heard of. And which, and I happened to know that I had the blow up of the Freightliner manual laying against the jury rail while he was saying that. And so I reached down and I picked it up. It was a blow up of the manual where Freightliner called the thing a trap bar. Right. Yeah. And he, he had just told the jury there was no such thing as a trap bar. And, and, and I said, well, are do you plan on calling Freightliner after this case and tell them they, <laughs> they don't know what kind of parts they got on their truck. You know, those, those little moments are, are huge. Right. And, uh, and, and then you get to drive them home uh, in closing argument. Yeah. Yeah. And it just shows that, they, that they're running away from the facts and, uh, you know, and that always, uh, always hurts them. So the, so the other thing, I, I guess the two other things I want to make sure we talked about, Greg, is um, you talked a little bit about damages, but I was wondering, you know, how did you present the damages to, uh, to the jury? And did you have a, a specific uh, ask or did you use a, a sort of per diem type argument or how did you present the, the damages to the jury as far as what, what you asked for? Well, no, I, I, you know, pointed out exactly what, what we were asking for. I have a damage chart and what the way we do it, Steve, is that, that I, um, I have the, my technician, uh, start the chart on the screen and then, uh, list the damages as we go through. And we had past medical expenses. And, and this is the reason the verdict is kind of, you know, it's not just a, uh, it, it's got a, a, all kind of numbers in it. Uh, right. you know, it's, it was 793,000 in, in past medical expenses and 1.7, million in future medicals and uh we had lost earnings of a little less than two hundred thousand uh passed and then uh 1.5 million in loss of earning capacity and then on pain and suffering we had uh you know past and future and basically i asked the jury to take his life expectancy and pay him five hundred dollars a day because right. he was going to you know <clears throat> i mean it, once they'd heard the you know 
the the horrific injury and the problems that he went through. I didn't think that was overreaching at all. Multiply that out, and it was around nine million. And then I gave uh, asked for a million in disfigurement, and then mental anguish. I asked for two hundred and fifty dollars a day, and you know did with the same type of uh, analysis. And then a loss of enjoyment of life. I asked for five million there. So the total compensatory I asked for was twenty three million roughly. Right. Um, and then I asked for punitives, uh, and and you know whatever they thought was right, and they ultimately gave you know five million in punitives. Is is that in? Uh, I mean, uh, in Alabama, is that tried in one phase? In Georgia, when we try punitives, there's uh, it's at least two phases. Sometimes the defendants will ask for three, uh, which uh, we always oppose. But but the you're supposed to try it in two phases. How how is it tried over in Alabama? One phase. Everything One phase. is done at the same time. Yeah, no bifurcation. And so, um, you know, they right after they, you know, it closed an argument. The last close, I'm I'm telling them this is what we think the case is worth. And and of course, usually, I uh, in this particular case, I actually gave them the numbers in my original close, and um, and then I invited the defendant to <laughs> right. tell the jury what do you think? You know, what do you think it's worth? And then the yeah. final, you know, we. I always, you know, try to tell the jury, you know, I know it's impossible to come up with a with a, a a value for what it's worth to sit in a wheelchair for the rest of your life when it's not your fault. And so the I, I made the blank check argument, which I'm sure you've probably used many times, and that is that you know, a, a suppose that I offer a blank check to anybody in this courtroom, and I'm not talking to the jury. You know, you can't put the jury in the right. position of of the uh, a victim. But so I point to the back of the courtroom there were there were a bunch of folks and they're watching the closing and i said just assume that i offered a blank check to anybody in this courtroom and and then and i told them that the check would be good for any amount they wanted to put in it and it would be theirs and they could cash it but all they'd have to do to get the check is swap places with my client right and th- that's a pretty effective argument to to get to tell them it, you know figure out what it's worth you know to to have your life uh, disrupted like this and, and something that you'll never get back. You know I mean? Your life yeah. is essentially now taking care of yourself for the rest of your life and worry about fevers and, um, you know, spasms and, and, and all the problems that, that, that go along with it. And, and let me guess that when you challenge the uh, defense to come up with a, a calculation, they, they jumped right on that. Uh, believe it or not, he wrote a zero. <laughs> yeah. Well, wow. Wow. I like it. Yeah, Uh, that takes guts. I'll say that. Wow. Mm -hmm. It does. Um, Well, um, well, uh, Greg, this has been uh, such a great, uh, great discussion. We really appreciate your time, and um, and I want to make sure that we've we've covered. Were there any other any other uh, practice points or things that came out of this trial that 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 we haven't talked about? Because this has been just a great discussion. Well, I've enjoyed it. I, I, Stephen Avon, I can't imagine. I, I, I don't know of anything we didn't cover. I mean, I think this pretty well summarizes the, the Lacey case. Well, this has been uh, just a fantastic conversation. Again, we really appreciate your time. I just want to remind our listeners that we have been talking with Greg Allen from the law firm of Beasley Allen, Crow, Methvin, Portis, and Miles uh, in Montgomery, Alabama. And, um, and you can look up Greg uh, and read about him and read about his uh, firm's tremendous results at BeasleyAllen.com. Greg, thank you so much for your time, and we really appreciate it. You're certainly welcome. Enjoyed it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, 
Have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.